today. This is an interview that uh, I've looked forward to ever since we scheduled it uh, with a man who I've come to know over the last three or four years. His name is Mark Kena. He is the chairman of the Randolph County Board. Mark, thank you so much for being with me. It's my pleasure, Will, and uh, it's it's great to be talking to your audience out there. Yes, and uh, we have a lot of folks that listen to the radio station from Randolph County. Me being based at Murfreesboro, I spend a lot of time talking about Jackson County things, so I think uh, it's going to be good to cover some ground that uh, doesn't get enough attention on this radio station often enough. And so let's get to know you a little bit. Sure. Uh, I, I don't even know. Are you born and raised Randolph County? Well, I am uh, in the big metropolis of Percy. Ah. Uh, so I was a Trico High School student and graduate uh, of there. And actually, later on in my teaching career, I went back and I was principal at Trico High School for a year. And then I was fortunate enough to be hired as the assistant regional superintendent for Faye Hughes, who uh, worked with Monroe and Randolph counties. And then later on, after that tenure, I ran for the regional superintendent's position and was elected and served 10 years as a regional superintendent. So um, I'm quite familiar with the area, with family from the area. Um, my sister-in-law, Joy, from Ava, Illinois, and uh, certainly... Uh, 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 have grown up in the Trico district and was a basketball player and a baseball player and a teacher and a coach and, and all of that. So I've spent my life here. Were your parents educators? My, uh, my father was a line foreman for Illinois Power Company, and my mother was a homemaker and worked a little bit at Gilster Mary Lee over in Steelville while, while the three boys were in college. So... Was there a specific point that you remember you decided that you wanted to go into education? Well, I think um, some of the people that had influences on me in my career, my high school band teacher was just a great fellow. Dick Ward was his name, and Dick grew up in Murfreesboro. Mm. And so he would share stories of the Murfreesboro football team and all of that. Undefeated and, and unscored, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was a wonderful saxophone player and played in the military and played in a lot of jazz clubs around and uh, uh, in southern Illinois. Probably uh, a regular at the Purple Crackle. He may have been. I, I know he talked about Heron quite a bit and some mm -hmm. of the people that he played with, uh, Buddy Rogers and different people. So, uh, yes. Uh, so I think I earned an appreciation for education from my high school teachers. And as I looked around at what I wanted to become, uh, my brothers were pretty much doing what uh, everyone else wanted to do, and that was uh, work in the coal mines. And uh, Dad being an electrician, I just didn't see myself in that way. And so as I was off to college and was a, uh, a college athlete and whatever, I was thinking about what I wanted to do with my life, and certainly education came to the forefront and uh, business education was important for me and that's where I got my start. How have I known you for the last three or four years and I didn't know you played college baseball? <laughs> well I, I don't know I guess the topic never came up but uh, I was a pitcher and uh, I started out my college career in Greenville College uh, up in Greenville Illinois and was on the varsity team there and then I came down and I played for Itchy Jones for a year or two and then uh, SIU was very talented at that time, and they were going to the College World Series. Yes. And, you know, my fastball wasn't quite up to that uh, that uh, category of, of what those other pitchers were. So it came to the point where I needed to uh, decide 
am I going to get a degree and and concentrate on my future? And so that's what I did. So uh, my junior year, I uh, I laid off the baseball team. But, you know, I always enjoyed baseball, and Itchy was always very good to me. And uh, so as I became a high school teacher, I was a coach. Mm. And I coached a lot of baseball in my years and even took a 93 team to the state championship game, got beat 3-2 to two in the state championship. That's a heartbreaker. It was. You for, don't forget that score. For a team of Steelville, 140 kids to be playing Schools with 600 kids, and I had a great team. Well, Steelville's always had a great baseball reputation, yes. softball reputation. Yes. it's uh, um, You know, we don't have football up there, and so we concentrate on basketball and baseball and softball and that type yeah. of thing. So, yep. Yeah. So it was, it was a good experience for me. Mark Keene is in the studio with me. He is the chairman of the Randolph County Board. When were you first elected to the county board? Oh, gosh, it would be 2012, so I'm just completing my 10th year as a commissioner. Uh, on a Friday, I was a regional school superintendent. On a Monday, I was a county commissioner. So uh, I guess I just can't keep a job, Will. Yeah, you, you know, know, you can't. <laughs> one of those. But uh, I've enjoyed my 10 years on the board. This is my second tenure as uh, board chair. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, it's a challenge. It was a challenge being a school administrator. And uh, I guess I wasn't just ready to um, grab the fishing pole or, or whatever and, and hang it up. So I, I needed to stay busy. And so some of the projects that we've done is like the Southwest Illinois Connector yes. and some of the things we've been involved with. So, And I've really enjoyed that. Absolutely. Um, let's take a grab at one of the topics in randolph county that's been a lot of discussion about lately and that's the chester bridge mm-hmm. obviously it's a uh, aged bridge and there has been plans seemingly for a long long time uh, to build a new bridge what is the status of that sure well i can i can tell you what i know at this particular point um the missouri uh, modot uh, is in charge of the um letting of bids to build the bridge and uh, there are four um, uh, firms in the running for a design and build um, project and our understanding is that uh, uh, that will finish up and will actually start construction sometime in 23. I can't tell you if it's in the summertime or the fall it's how it all falls together but apparently the agreements are ready and have been agreed to what we're seeing right now is uh, some efforts to try to stabilize the current bridge in order to make it last until the new bridge is built. And they're telling us that the construction time frame should be about uh, 30 months, somewhere in there. So we're probably looking at uh, 2026 before it gets opened. But uh, for those of you who travel across the bridge or periodically go across the bridge, uh, we know that it needs some help. And uh, the bridge is very important to us, and the design of the new bridge will really help us in regards to uh, water flooding issues. Um, We're hopeful that when the river is high, the, the new bridge will be high enough to go over the levee on the Missouri side, which will keep it open yeah, better. Right. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, employees that live in Illinois and work at TG and over in Perryville and that particular area and vice versa. We have people that come over and work at uh, Menard or Chester Mental Health or Gilster. 
And uh, that's an important economic piece for our areas to keep that open. Otherwise, you know, during the floods, uh, we've had people that have had to drive south to Cape Girardeau or drive north to the JB Bridge to be able to to get, get on back the other side. Yeah, so it's an important piece for us. And knock on wood, we're hoping it all comes together and uh, we can stabilize the current bridge until the new one is built in 26. Now, I assume the bridge is going to be built essentially in the exact same location as the current one? Yes, just on the St. Louis side of the, of the, the current bridge. And uh, on the Perryville side, you mean to say? As we look at the river going north and south, the new bridge will be on the St. Louis side. I see. Okay. Yes. Uh, obviously, we'll continue to use the current roads, the 51 that goes over to Perryville and uh, the, uh, the road that goes up to Route 3. Um, there will be some small changes and whatever, but for the most part, the, uh, I understand what you mean. Now it'll be to the north of yes. the current. Okay. Yes. I just I was I was thinking east and west, and you were talking north <laughs> and south. So right, right. So I really don't think it'll. You could probably reach out and touch the new bridge. You know, they'll have to, uh, you know, go down to the base of the river and put the pilings in and all of that. And I look forward to when that happens because I want to watch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, my office in the Randolph County Courthouse overlooks the Chester Bridge and the river. So I'll be able to keep track a little bit if I'm still a commissioner after, uh, you know, 2024. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll see how it all comes together. And is it going to be a two-lane bridge? It will be two wider lanes with two lanes on either side. So there will be room to pull off to the side should there be a problem in the traffic lane. So in effect, it'll have two nice big shoulders and it'll, be, it'll still be a two-lane road. Very good. Mm -hmm. Well, that's uh, an exciting development for Chester and for all of Southern Illinois. Now, you mentioned MoDOT. Congressman Bost had told me at one point that the bridges, as they come from the north down to the south, or I suppose vice versa, as they cross the Mississippi River, are maintained every other one by the alternating state. Is that right? That's what my understanding is, yeah. And the Chester Bridge is maintained by MoDOT. Okay. We, we know that. So I would assume when you go to Cape Girardeau, that bridge would be Illinois. I and, see. Uh, and so when we get up to St. Louis, I lose track. I can't tell you. Uh, There's Poplar Street and the Stan Span and all these bridges up there, the Eads Bridge and all of that. Right. So I don't know exactly which ones are by which uh, MoDOT. But, uh, well, one of them's a railroad bridge, and I know the railroad isn't going to let anybody mess with their <laughs> stuff except them. So, right, right. Uh, but anyway, don't let me go too far down that rabbit trail. <laughs> Um, it is 12.14. Mark Keenan is our guest in the studio today. We'll take a break, and we'll be back with more of our conversation with him right after this. Mark, many people who read the County Journal newspaper have read about the various meetings that have been held about the development of uh, some solar farms in Randolph County, specifically near Tilden, Illinois. Um, a lot of... Uh, feedback, a lot of controversy over that. Uh, Mark, give me your perspective on the solar farms and sure. uh, 
you know, why the board ultimately voted uh, to accept the recommendations of the zoning committee. Sure. Well, uh, let me just take you back a couple of years. Back in uh, 2018, the county received word that uh, Dynagy had sold the Baldwin Power Plant to a company by the name of Vistra. And as uh, that uh, took place and not long after, we received word that the Vistra folks were in the uh, had interest to downsize uh, coal-fired plants. And not only did we see that happening, but we saw in the federal government the movement to uh, reduce uh, coal-fired emissions and to reduce the number of coal mines out there. And so I think what we're seeing is somewhat of a product of what's happening with that. Now, back in 2018, Randolph County said to itself, you know, we need to be ready in case uh, the world changes in regards to alternative energy. So whether it was wind turbines or solar farms or whatever, we needed to have an ordinance passed that would make sense. So we put a planning group together. We uh, incorporated uh, input from the Farm Bureau and other you know, stakeholders in the county. And we passed an ordinance, which uh, for the solar ordinance, it, uh, it, I, I think what we tried to do is to protect not only the landowners but the developers as well and make sure that uh, as they looked at putting something in Randolph County, it looked at the setbacks uh, that you may have with solar panels from someone's home or barn or whatever, as well as other pieces like the roads and the condition of the roads and also the decommissioning of the farms. Let's say that uh, the farm has an expected life of 30 or 35 years and uh, after 20 years uh, the uh, owners of the solar farm decide they want to uh, decommission or get out of it. What we require is that there is a surety bond that is in play that we would have the money to take care of the decommissioning and put the land back the way it was or better than it was. What we see with a lot of the solar panels that are being put in, they're putting pollinator type uh, vegetation in under it uh, and certainly we have no issue with bees and all of those things we know the the need for them. But uh, so the county honestly hasn't gone out and advocated to have solar uh, companies come to the county. I think we're just in a position where we have the infrastructure because of the Baldwin Power Plant. There are high transmission lines that go through the county and uh, uh, with those high power transmission lines and the uh, infrastructure that we have, that gives uh, developers uh, the, uh, I guess, the the impact or the thought that they could come to Randolph County and make something happen. So they have gone to individual landowners and they have uh, stated the cases that we would like to lease your property for X number of years and we'll, we'll pay you this rate, etc. if you will allow us to put uh, solar panels and uh, the such on their property. So when, uh, when that happens, they have to file a special use permit with our zoning board, which they've done. And so then our zoning board, which has uh, uh, nine individuals from around the county, 
they meet and they basically go through the special use permit and they interview the uh, operators to see if what they are planning to do meets the ordinance that we've laid out. Uh, these owner-operators also have to meet the requirements of the Illinois Department of Agriculture as they put these things in. So um, when, when this, this meeting happened, it was, it was really a hearing, and uh, we held it in the courthouse. There was an overflow crowd in the third-floor lounge, and we allowed, uh, well, the zoning board, first off, allowed people to state their uh, case on whether they were for it or against it and why. And I think overwhelmingly um, the group that was against it stated the fact that they didn't want farmland to be taken away and used for alternative, ener alternative energy projects. Um, what I hear quite often is go ahead and put it on uh, reclaimed strip land, uh, areas where um, it's not being farmed in right. the county. Right. And honestly, I don't have a problem with that, and neither does the county board. Uh, but it comes down to they tell us that it takes a lot more resources to put the, um, the panels on the um, non-farm land, the mined land. And as far as getting their power to the distribution stations, it's more expensive to do that. I know on the east side of the county, we have a county line road that runs uh, north and south right next to Perry County. And uh, certainly uh, there's a lot of old strip land that's up that way. And uh, Carter Coal Company has a, a mine up that way. And a lot of people said, you know, can't, why can't you do that? We wouldn't have a problem if the developers wanted to do that, but they haven't chosen to do that. And so um, the county isn't actively going out and seeking companies to build solar uh, here. That's just the way it, it happened. Yeah, it's a function of the fact that they have enough money, apparently, to pay whoever owns that farmland more than they could make off of farming it. I think that's the case, and there are... There are several farmers who maybe don't have the children that uh, want to continue farming the land. I can't speak for all of the farmers. Uh, for the Tilden project, there were about 10 different owners of property that uh, put together. And the size of it is, is uh, fairly large. Uh, um, we don't have a whole lot to compare it to. but uh, um, Are we talking about thousands of acres? We're talking about 1,200 acres, which would be the panels. Um, the actual um, megawatts would be 150 megawatts, and they tell us that's enough to, um, to power about uh, 28,000 homes, and the cost of the project is $180 million. And so um, when the project uh, came in front of the board, it met the requirements of the ordinance, so they passed it unanimously. So then it comes to us for a final approval. And again, we had a, a large crowd, and many of them stated their case. And we certainly were interested in what they had to say. And um, for us, it was a, a piece of how do, we, how do we go against the ordinance that we passed if they meet the requirements of those ordinance? So we really felt like that was an important piece that we had to support the zoning board and that type of thing. But also, when we look at... Uh, tax revenue for the taxing bodies in in the county for instance where this is located is in the Sparta school district 
So the Sparta School District would see an increase of around $500,000 a year in property tax revenue from that. And that's no small amount for a rural school district. And Sparta has a lot of needs. Uh, they have a lot of free and reduced lunch kids. And um, that, that half a million dollars will make a big in, uh, will be important for that district. Certainly. But uh, also, when we look at the Baldwin Power Plant, in its heyday, the county would receive in revenue from both the sale of coal and from the uh, property tax revenue, we received just the county over $2 million a year from that power plant. So we're down now to, um, instead of being worth uh, $90 million in assessed value, it's down to about $8 million in assessed value. And what we're receiving right now is around $200,000 in tax revenue from that power plant. And it will go away, you know, in 2025, they tell us. So many of us are keeping our fingers crossed and hoping that it will stay on a little longer, but they're not giving us any indication that it will. And Vistra has told us that with the Coal to Solar Act, they'll be putting 65 megawatts of solar panels out there on that campus of that power plant, as well as putting some battery storage of about 9 megawatts on there. So that that's one we just approved another uh, solar project which is a much smaller one it's a five megawatt um, it's on one landowner's piece of property that's at the corner of 151 and the county line road and it's called the percy solar project and people who live in the town of percy can actually participate in it and get credits on their power bill much like you know you uh, uh, in our particular area, Ameren owns the power lines and the poles. Right. And we buy our power from a source, whatever that be. Sure. Whether, whether it's home field energy or constellation or whatever it be. So in this regard, um, a property owner in Percy can actually participate with Next Amp. That's the company that's putting this in. And they can actually get credits for their power bill from participating in buying their power from Next Amp. Mm -hmm. So kind of a different piece, much smaller. I mean, we're talking 150 megawatts with Tilden. We're talking 5 megawatts with the Percy Solar Project. Um, so um, I don't think this is the last we'll see of projects like this that will come to us. Um, as of right now, I don't know of any other that's in the pipeline have been saying that we're ready to, uh, uh, to go to permit. But I do have farmers telling me that they're getting calls from producers. Companies looking that are to, talking to locate. Them. So we'll see where this goes. And I know this has happened in Perry County as well. Sure. So, yeah. so that's where we're at. Mark, Mark Keene is my guest in the studio today. He's a Randolph County chairman. If you have uh, questions for Dr. Keene, you can text them at 618-426-3308. That's 618-426-3308. It's 1230. We'll take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the Randolph County Care Center. Uh, Mark, I wanted to ask about the Randolph County Care Center. Uh, that is a facility that's been operating in Randolph County for many, many years. People of this radio station hear their ads on the air uh, all the time. Uh, I know that there is a proposal on the ballot in Randolph County to potentially make some changes to the operations there. Talk about that. 
Sure. Um, well, the the care center has been operating since 1951 or 52. There was a referendum passed back in 49 to fund it and build it. And so it's been added onto in the early 70s. And so in its heyday, I suppose, the capacity of that care center was at around 140 residents. We're currently approved for 100 beds by the state and we do pay bed tax on 100 beds. Currently, our census is in the 40s. All right. And what's happened through the last several years is that we've seen the advent or the collection of, uh, of other facilities to take care of seniors. Uh, the, uh, the facilities like Cedarhurst or uh, Chester Manor or others that are kind of like uh, assisted living centers, let us say, and many of them will have uh, memory cares along with them. So what we're looking at is how can we better utilize the Randolph County Care Center. And so as we looked at some of the needs for our residents, uh, we determined that we could be helped with a behavioral health care unit that could be incorporated in with the care center. Now what we have planned and what we've had our architects draw up designs is that we would separate 50 beds and so we would have a more appropriate size let us say for the care center and in the meantime we're looking at um, using uh, American Recovery Act money from the federal government which uh, they've strongly suggested that we put behavioral health care as one of the uses for that money so we would be able to use some of that money and not increase taxes for residents by making improvements to the care center. So we're looking at everything from new heating and air conditioning, redoing the bathing areas and the bathroom areas and upgrading the rooms and all that it takes to, uh, to really do a good job with bringing it up. Um, it just so happens that we have two elevators in the facility, so we would be able to separate the 50 beds for the care center from the wing where we would have our behavioral health. And we've been meeting with our, our providers and our local hospital there in Sparta. Comwell is our mental health provider. Sparta Community Hospital is working with us. And what we're hopeful is that, and we have no interest in closing that facility, we want to just better utilize the facility. So with the partnership of the hospital and the Comwell, which stands for Community Wellness, all right, we're hoping to be able to help some of our people who have issues, whether it be with substance use or whether it was mental issues, whether it's bipolar or whatever it is, that we're able to put a unit in that would make sense. And we would have some beds that uh, would be able to uh, accommodate you if you needed a 10-day stay or whatever. And Comwell's been working with the Illinois Department of Public Health and the mental health folks to determine what kind of a unit that we would put in there. We see a lot of need, whether it's in the emergency rooms or as we talk to our police who are dealing with individuals who have issues on the weekends or anytime, and uh, ambulance providers and all of that. They're telling us that, you know, it's hard to find a bed to put someone on an inpatient basis whether you have to try to get them to Harrisburg or have to get them to Mount Vernon or somewhere in the St. Louis area or down to Cape. We're just kind of in a desert area for being able to help people. 
So as we thought of uses for our ARPA money, and I think our, our philosophy is how can we make an impact for years to come with this money, not just throw it away. So we want to invest in something that's going to make a difference. Now, some people may say, well, you know, I don't want that drug addict next to my grandma who's in the uh, care center. He's next to her anyway at Walmart and at the <laughs> gas station and at, you know, wherever the case might be. Could be your next door neighbor. Right. You know, so what we're doing is we're uh, putting a separate entrance in in the back, a separate uh, road to get to it. Uh, we'll be uh, putting fencing up to divide the uh, behavioral health center from uh, the rest of the fairgrounds where it's located. And uh, we're going to do our best to secure that facility and make sure that uh, what we get out of it is a positive and not a negative. Sure. And in the end, then, instead of having 60 beds that aren't being used, we're going to better utilize that facility and provide some help for people who need it. Well, and what people, I think, understand is that the reason why you're having to make these decisions is part market-based and also partly based upon the fact that the cost to take care of, of a senior in the Randolph County Care Center, I'm just going to use round numbers that aren't going to be accurate to what actually is going on, is likely $100 in your reimbursement rate from the various, whether it's VA or Medicaid or Medicare or whatever, is falling short of that daily cost of care. Is that right? I think that's probably true. You know, when you look at the funding that you get, you get private care. You get people who have enough resources to pay for their own bills there. But then you also have Medicare and Medicaid. But many of those people are opting for the other options, the assisted living centers you're talking about. Yes, yes. And that's, uh, we've seen our census go from around 65 to 70 down into the 40s. And as you know, COVID was not kind to care facilities, nor what the expectations are. It couldn't be. You know, people, families didn't want to put grandma in the care center and not be able to go visit her. Sure. And with the lockdowns and the masking and all of that, um, it just wasn't a good situation for the residents who were there or the families that had them. So in many cases, families had to keep grandpa, grandma at home and do their best to take care of them, uh, knowing that if they put them in a care facility that they wouldn't be able to visit right right so so it was a it was a tough couple of years there you know i'm hopeful that we'll get healthy here in the next few years and things will get back to somewhat of a normal situation so are you advocating for a yes vote then on the question yes yes we are really if a no vote would mean that the county would need to get out of the nursing home business and in that case we really couldn't invest three or four million dollars in the care center and not have the support to continue to work with it. I think the best case scenario is that we would create an administrative board made up of Comwell, Sparta Hospital, and Randolph County, whether it's the health department or, or to oversee whatever, the new campus. To oversee the new campus and the funding for it and, and make it work. And so that's what we're hoping to do. We're hoping to breathe some new air, make it vibrant, and help our people. You know, we, we can't uh, find a bed in, in O'Fallon. Uh, we can't find a bed in Marion. Um, we need to be able to take care of ours. Mark Keene is our guest in the studio. We'll take the last break of the day, and then we'll be back to continue our conversation 
in about three and a half minutes. In the studio with me today has been Mark Kena. He is the chairman of the Randolph County Board. Uh, Mark, one thing that you have in front of you, something you and I have worked on together now for the last three, four years, time flies, hard to really remember, has been the Southwest Connector Project. Uh, it's online at siconnector.com. This is the proposed expansion of Illinois Routes 127, 154, and 3 from Murfreesboro to Waterloo. Uh, we continue to advocate for it. Um, I, I don't know what else to say because it's hard to interview me and you sit here. We know this project <laughs> sure. back and forth. Sure. Um, I've recently taken over the chairmanship of that after you've done a wonderful job with it for the last four years. Um, why is this, I'll let you make the pitch, why is this project important to southwestern Illinois? Well, sure, and, and Will, before I start, I just want to thank everyone listening out there. You know, uh, in many ways, I feel like this is my home area. My, my grandma and grandpa uh, were from the Pyatt area and had a farm out there, and uh, we're good Baptists, and uh, uh, certainly uh, my dad grew up and went to Pinckneyville High School, as, as many of my cousins have, and so... Uh, uh, Probably knew Duster Thomas. Oh, yeah, I'm, I imagine. Dad yeah. graduated in 1939. He was a gymnast, so I'm sure he knew all those teachers at that particular mm -hmm. time. Dad wasn't a basketball player, but still, I'm sure he uh, rooted for a few folks. At well, that how do you avoid that? I, I don't know. <laughs> Being a farmer, I think it took too much time away from practice, okay. so I'm sure that's what it was. I uh, always joke that in Ducoin, when you come out of the womb, they give you a football helmet, and <laughs> Pinckneyville, when you come out, they hand you a basketball. That's right. That's right. And... Uh, it's been a, a labor of love for those people for many years to support their teams, yeah. and, and that's been a great thing. So, so I feel like I'm talking to almost my family that's out there today, and uh, you know, it's been uh, it's been a great thing to be a member of the county board and to actually have been a teacher at Trico High School, and to uh, you're a pioneer. I was a pioneer as a student and a teacher, so. Uh, Certainly, I'm supportive of uh, the Trico School District, and uh, I taught in Steelville and in Redbud and uh, back a principal at Trico and uh, regional superintendent, and so I've been involved with education for a long time, met a lot of really great people and a lot of good teachers, so I've, I've been blessed in that. On the, on the topic of the connector, it really is something that will make a huge difference for our particular area. When I think about my grandchildren and the people that I will leave behind, I'm hopeful that this uh, uh, rural four-lane expressway will come to fruition and will start. Um, when we look at the purpose and need of this connector, it just jumps off the page at, at you. The safety issues, the fact that we have economic engines that can uh, that can really benefit from this, whether it's our rivers in the area or whether it's the wineries or the healthcare institutions, let alone the educational institutions like uh, SIU Carbondale and, uh, and so many things. Uh, and what we need is we need a safe way for those people to get to and from. You know, if you're having a heart attack and you're in Randolph County, it's going to take you a while to get to somewhere whether it's the Metro East or whether it's to Carbondale, to Heartland, in Marion, or wherever it's at. Um, so what we're really looking at are ways to help people stay well, get the health care that they need, but also get employment, uh, make this place more vibrant. 
Um, we've seen a loss of uh, residents in Randolph County in the last five or six years, probably around 2,000 people. Uh, when I started as commissioner in 2012, we were up almost to 34,000 people. Now we're at 31,000 people. So we need jobs. We need um, a good quality of life, whether it's with a behavioral health care center in Sparta or, um, uh, or other uh, things that could benefit. And when I talk to the mayors of these communities and I say, what do you say to businesses who want to locate, you know, in your area, whether it's Sparta or Redbud or Pinckneyville, whatever, um, a lot of businesses ask for, is there an access to a four lane? And when they say no, that kind of shuts it off. And so, I mean, I've heard from uh, Mayor Alonji of DuCoin telling me that if the connector comes through, it's only 11 miles to DuCoin, and they will benefit, too, from the rural four-lane expressway. So what we think is we have a good template that we've put together. We had uh, Senator Shemp helped us with... Uh, uh, a task force that we put together that I was fortunate to lead had great participation by lots of folks and put together what I think is a really good roadmap or document for the connector. So we've been talking about the connector ever since Ken Gray was in office. I can find articles in 1964. <laughs> and so uh, we feel like it's time to move forward on that. And what a better way to do that than to take some of our existing two-lane roads and retrofit them and make four-lane roads that are safer. When we look at the last uh, eight or ten years and we look at the number of severe accidents and major fatalities, there have been far too many. And some of that people are passing on roads they don't need to be passing on. And uh, when we talk to the Farm Bureau about uh, what they need, they tell us we need safe roads to be able to take our combine or our corn picker or whatever it is from X point to B point. And if we could create roads with better shoulders on it and uh, that are safer, then they're not going to have those accidents sure. happen. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Marquina has been our guest in the studio today. You can find the entirety of this uh, interview posted on the radio station's website shortly after the program. Uh, Mark, we're out of time. That happened fast, Will. <laughs> <laughs> well, it goes by quickly. Uh, time flies when you're having fun. But again, fun. I want to thank everyone. Like I said, I feel like I'm talking to my family today. Well, I'm sure that you likely have been, literally <laughs> in some cases. Uh, SIConnector.com is the website for that topic. We will send you out as we always do. Coming up at the top, Jay Seculo Radio.